Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Hello. Marilyn Sloshback. We're here at the lovely Asbury Park Boardwalk inside the Langosta Lounge doing our next session of Feed This Community, a podcast that goes a little deeper into why we're here and what our purpose is and how we manage to maneuver through it. So I have two wonderful guests with me with... Um, some interesting opinions on life and Asbury Park, and I'd like to get into a little bit more about them than I already know. So I'm going to let them each take the mic and tell us who they are and why they're here. Hi, my name's Ernesto Caleri. I live in Asbury Park for the last 16, 17 years. I'm a writer, uh, photographer, director, advertising guy. And I write the column in the Tri-City News, The Justified Right. And my name is Dan Jacobson. I'm publisher of the Tri-City News, which has been publishing for 20 years. I founded it. I moved to Asbury Park and bought my home here in 1994, and I've lived here ever since. Okay, so I'm going to ask you both this question and give me uh, truthful answers. <laughs> this is about authentic communication, so mm. um, you can be as controversial Versial, funny, dry, or witty as you'd like to be, but let us know really, really, really how you feel. Oh, Ernesto and I never do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, what are you terrible at but love to do anyway? <laughs> Trying to fix things in the house. <laughs> I actually was able to fix a couple toilets in the last couple of days, and I feel a tremendous sense of accomplishment. But um, my wife wears the tool belt in the family. So that one comes to mind immediately, but uh, I'm pretty hapless on that. Outside that, I don't know. Everything goes pretty well. Does your wife like power tools? Yes. She's the, <laughs> she literally, she's the one I actually, when she's using the uh, circular saw, I can't watch. I look away. Um, she's the one with the, with the drill. Uh, again, I got toilet patrol and I finally, after 20 years, figured out how to fix a toilet completely. Good nice. for you. Same question. Um, I'm not good at drawing. And I'm not good at over communicating. I think like um, the the average business now and the average corporation hyper communicates. They want every correspondence written down. They want every decision like you know meticulously laid laid out. And that's not really my style. I don't believe in over communication. And um, I go to great lengths to under communicate and just say what's necessary. Can you come work for me? <laughs> so I think that's what Let me help you under communicate to people. Just just give them a look. And that look should be effective. Enough. I'm all about under communication. Mm -hmm. Just get yeah, it done. You shouldn't have to over communicate to be productive. In fact, I think it's unproductive to over communicate because if people don't, if you're not aligning yourself with the right people, then you're not going to be successful. And if you have to over communicate, then it's just a sign of either bad leadership from the top of the company or bad hiring choices. Actually, it kind of traces and tracks writing, good writing. You want to be very um, sparse. You know, as you know, from the editing process, you're always trying to cut, 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 cut. And in the process of doing that, you are really sharpening your views and sharpening your perspectives and sharpening your thoughts. So um, over communication, it's a great point, Ernesto, over communication really I think reflects a lack of focus and a lack of effectiveness. So it's part of the process of really um, sharpening what you what you think. 
and be more active and effective. Yeah, sometimes I feel the older I get, the more stuff that's shoved into that brain <laughs> and I don't have room for all the dialogue and I just need the, the immediacy of the points to remember it even. Well, I think one of the things about life, uh, and this involves whether it's the, the paper or life in general, you know, I think there's a fixed amount of time in a day. I think there's a fixed bandwidth in our brains and uh, you have a choice. You can either make the decisions ahead of time on what the priority is, or you'll bump up against the limits and the decisions will be made for you. So in regard to what you're saying, Marilyn, is one thing as I've gotten older, I found is you have to know how to say no. You have to know how to say it earlier. You have to know how to say it nicely. Um, but it's part of being in an effective human um, to be able to do that at this stage in life. So, Because there's a lot of stuff coming at you. So if I say these five things to you, tell me which one resonates the most or strikes some sort of chord. I like this. It's like a psychological test. Yeah. And by the way, we did not get these questions ahead of time. <laughs> well, life's too much fun to be boring. So, Dan... Politician, farmer, community <laughs> activist, artist, or parent? God, what strikes me? Well, farmer, I don't really have a connection to. Parent, I certainly don't have a connection to, except my lovely parents who are still alive and they're elderly. But politician, community activist, what was the other one? Um, artist. An artist. Those all three strike me. And um, a politician and an artist strike me because the work that I do in the paper has always fused politics and culture and arts. And uh, those two actually strike me more than even the community activists. The community activists I like because I think that community activists are just such a great fabric of a community, particularly in Asbury Park. Uh, you know, whether you agree or disagree with their perspective, I love the energy from most community activists. I, I even like to say that, you know, I'm not a, well, we're not, I don't know how much we'll get into here. I'm not a Trump fan, I don't like the guy, but um, I, tend to be more of a radical centrist, maybe maybe even a little right of center. But personally, I like, with the exception of Ernesto, I tend to like uh, left-wing progressive activists personally very much, and Ernesto. Um, so I, I like the energy from community activists. But to me in my work, uh, politics and arts and culture have really fused. And the paper itself, through 20 years of the mission of trying to uh, you know, boost Asbury Park and transform the region, politics and the arts have intersected. They're, um, they uh, are symbiotic. Uh, we, I try as best I can through the paper to encourage politicians to be more creative and to think outside the box and support culture. And of course, arts and culture are what I think you know, had to build Asbury Park and what will transform our suburban region into a place that you know, is a vibrant, great place. Same question. What are the words? So we're... Politician, mm -hmm. farmer, community activist, artist, or parent? Hmm. I would say that with the exception of... When I think about it, I mean, if you're going to be an artist and you're going to be successful, you have to be somewhat political, even if it's in your sphere, your industry. I think if you're going to be a farmer, particularly in New Jersey, and you want to farm, uh, you definitely need attorneys because you can't farm in your front yard, your backyard. Um, if you're just going to be a politician, I have a very low opinion of you. I have very low opinion of uh, politics in general. As someone who's um, run for U.S. Congress and played at that level, I would say that people that strive to do that are mainly assholes. <laughs> and, um, and community activists, I mean, if you're gonna live in your community and not be active, you're, you're gonna be a victim to someone else's agenda sooner or later. 
So I think everything is somewhat political. And uh, even parenting, I mean, you know, you can't even have a kid today without the government telling you you have to inject them with, you know, 116 injections by the time they're in high school. So, I mean, politics is in my column this week. I wrote that, which is a true story. Um, now I sound like Trump. I'm just validating everything I say myself. <laughs> that's fine. Um, all politics is an extension of war. You're either at war with yourself. You're either at war with your wife. You're either at war with your community. And politics is just an extension of war. So um, you want to be as political as you can by while, while maintaining the as great a level of sincerity as you can. But everything, no matter what, you're going to be in a community. You have to be somewhat political. Of course, you could say war is an extension of politics. Yes. Yeah, there's like too. Yeah. yeah. That's a famous saying, too, for good reason, too. Yeah, it's funny because I, to me, I'm a new parent, even though I have twin, almost seven-year-olds. But I didn't have kids till I was almost 50. So I did all the processes that go along with that for some reasons that I'm not sure why at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I struggle with parenting because I, I don't know that I'm good at it because I'm not in the box of what a parent's supposed to look like in society. So it's going to be really interesting. It's almost like a case study to watch <laughs> my children and see what happens because of my views and the places I put myself. And when we talk about left or right, mm. you know, every time I sit with a politician, they're like, I don't even know what side of the fence you're on. You, yourself, me. yeah. Because yeah. my like views me. are kind of specific to the thing we're talking about. Right. And the intelligence that's in the conversation, which I find sometimes is non-existent in politics. Yeah. But, you know, the parenting, farming, activist, artist, I think what I do for a living resonates. Oh, you're kind of all those things. All those yeah, things. Sure. Like farmers to me, like yeah. they pull my heartstrings because I know how hard it is to work a 15 hour day in the heat. Like a chef is in the heat inside doing the same grueling, passionate thing that you love and trying to keep that perspective of this is not just a job, this is my craft, this is the thing that feeds me. A lifestyle. Yeah, and it's so difficult to do both of those industries right now yeah. in America. And Newspapers you know, are easy. It's grueling sitting in an air-conditioned room writing. <laughs> <laughs> it would be for me. <laughs> I think. It, I think not for me, Ernesto. Yeah, I was gonna say we're easy. Writing, writing in terms of what we do, yeah, is technically easy, but I think there's a social price to pay. I think you know between for you, uh, for well, for both of us, you know, because I get people that say to me, um, you know, you're the only reason why I read that paper, and that Dan, oh my God, I can't believe he he says the things he says. I go, are you kidding me? I don't think Dan gets death threats. I don't think Dan has to beat people up in bars like I do. That's right. Yeah, at, le at least Dan, like you know, people get pissed at him. They they may not advertise. If I write something, it's like people don't want to serve me food. Right. People want to kick me out of their place. It's like, but. Well, I got two of the best um, negative compliments I've ever received when we opened in Rumson. One was the death threat on Facebook for taking out a salad bar, right. which oh my, I, I thought was just Very amazingly um, 
joyful to have that thrown at me for something so stupid. And considering the salad bar didn't really have anything fresh on it to begin with. So, and the second um, thing was somebody called me, told me to go back to Asbury Park because I was a hipster. Oh, and I didn't an belong there. And I was like, yes, I'm We've a liked. hipster. Yeah, it's an interesting complex, <laughs> and complex I'm back a in a complex. I'm a 55-year-old hipster. Right. Yeah. Raspberry yeah. Park. I yeah. was like, wow. That's cool. You know, but hey, they were a tax from their end. But from my end, I mm. felt great because yeah. sometimes you look at this stuff and say, wow, it's not cancer research we're doing here. We're just trying, trying to, to get you to think yeah. and stop living well, in that bubble well i think you know in, in the in the realm of trying to get people to think one of the things that i'm particularly proud of at the paper is having ernesto's voice and he's been doing it for 10 years and i don't always agree with him on stuff i, I tend to agree with him on the economic stuff he writes I'm, I'm always impressed with his economic writing the other thing that i like about ernesto and i was talking to him about it earlier and i've talked to him about it before it's excellent to hear the other side and a lot of people um increasingly in this country it's becoming an echo chamber and on social media or on uh, TV, everyone's just retreating to their corners, listening to people they agree with, and it's, and it's further polarizing us. And our paper, uh, some the other com- the other regular columnists are more to the left. Um, our LGBT columnist Jess Alamo is a solid Democrat. She's active in the Young Democrats. Uh, the rotating columnists we have in the second slot. Um, Twice a month, we have Joe Grillo, who's an Asbury Park Democratic chairperson, and the other columnists are to the left culturally and politically. So, with their, and I'm, I consider myself part of the radical center. So, between all of us, it's one of the few um, media outlets I've ever seen, even to the, not ever, but media outlets today I've seen where all views converge. And people get pissed off that we, that we have them. But you know what? What I tell people is I don't care if you agree or disagree with Ernesto or the other columnists, it's got to all be together. You got to hear it, you got to listen to it. And to me, it's the antidote of what's going on in this country. Well, I think, you know, I know you both have different views on politics, and that's primarily why I wanted you at this yeah. table, because I think it's wonderful to be able to get all those views in your paper. Yeah. We live, as far as I'm concerned, in a society that has been ignited by a president, like him or not like him, but what it does is get people to rise up in a time when they might have been passive. And that part of it I like. You know, I don't know if you read Vanity Fair. I skim skim through it a lot, yeah. This issue has um, a writer from the New York Times, I forget her name, and she's getting a lot of flack because of her positions on the Me Too movement and some of these polarized rise-ups that are becoming you know, just as Trump is their thing. And it's either you're in it or you're out of it and your views can't kind of. And I think, and I I think we try to locally do the opposite of that. And it's kind of cool that, you know, in the one same publication, you'll get people from different views getting criticized. And it's, I think, you know, talking about backhanded compliments, I think some of the best compliments I get is I have people denouncing me both as a right wing, right wing conservative and a left wing, a left wing radical. So I get it from both sides, which I think is great. But um, but, yeah, people have to come together regarding Trump. I mean, it's funny. Ernesto and I, um, as I said, we agree a lot on economics. I actually like his economic writing. We disagree dramatically on Trump. I'm a never Trumper. I can't stand the guy. But um, in terms of igniting the country, I don't know. My problem with Trump is what I don't like is he just plays to his base. And I'm concerned that he doesn't expand his base. He doesn't know how to. And the problem with that is I don't like the, the hard left in this country. I call them the loony left. I don't like the Bernie Sanders types. I think they're they're going to they would drive us into a ditch. And I'm concerned that Trump is um, just 
breaking us up more. And if things go south, the alternative will be on the extreme in the other direction. And I think the job of a president, whether you liked Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan or Franklin Roosevelt, I think the job is at some point is to reach out to the center and find a way to balance it and or else you spin out of control. And that's that's really one of my big problems with Trump. So I just think he's publicly mean i don't know yeah. how he is privately but i bet privately he's probably everyone says he's nice but you know being in the restaurant business and having to deal with customers in the way that they treat the yeah. staff or each other even at a table or me it's like can we just have manners yeah. like, trying to teach my kids to have manners in a world that has none yeah. you know when they they're constantly like turn that off mommy yeah. he said the the, this word or the, that word and it's like on the news at nine o'clock in the morning you well, know Ernesto <laughs> described Donald Trump at the beginning I hadn't seen anyone else describe him this way and I thought it was interesting in the campaign because I don't know what, what you thought of him I actually call Ernesto Calario Ernesto Che Calario so if I slip and call him Che I always call him Che but um, I think Ernesto you called him uh, chemotherapy for the political system I think that's yes. what you were th- suggesting in the campaign which I thought was an interesting way to put it and chemotherapy Thank God I've never had to go through it, but obviously it could be a very unpleasant, very unpleasant process for a greater good. And I thought that, although I don't agree with you, I thought that metaphor was a pretty interesting and apt one that I haven't seen anywhere else. Most uh, of government is a cancer. Yeah. Um, You know, do you really, you know, right now people are offended because um, we won't let uh, women execute babies in their bodies that they willingly mostly brought into the world on their own, Uh, you know, with willing participation. Um, But yet we want a government to tell us, you know, you have to vaccinate yourself. You have to um, pay. Everything you see here is taxed. Every piece of everything you see here is taxed. And what does government do with that money? But waste it. I mean, we have smart bombs, but dumb generals. Um, So can't uh, government is the bigger it is, the more of a cancer it is. So Trump to me, um, yes, he is mean. Do I think everything that comes out of his mouth um, is mainly offensive and kids shouldn't listen to it? Yes, I agree. But I mean, look around you. Look on television. Um, everything you see is uh, is offensive. I mean, you know, as a single straight guy who loves women, I don't need to see sex on my TV every 30 seconds or on my phone. Yeah. I think it's offensive. Does, is Trump more offensive than that? No, I don't think so. But he matches our society. Um, you know, we're an immoral society in many, in many ways. Every, things that we should think is, are bad, like the killing, callous killing of human beings in the womb. Um, you know, we, we deserve a president that is somewhat like him. Uh, someone like, I mean, except for Ronald Reagan, I can't think of a decent man we've had as president. I think the first George Bush was pretty decent. Okay. Um, I like Obama. Sorry. Uh, I have mixed feelings about him. I liked the normalcy of it. In yeah. my life, I find very little normalcy in what I interact with. The problem with him, Marilyn, he, he bought the normalcy, doubled the national debt as the size of the economy, and which is, I guess you can argue you can do it in uh, when you have a recession, but... I think he failed to solve a lot of the problems. I mean, listen, he, he handled himself in a um, 
dignified. You know, in a dignified he was manner. always dignified. It was a dignified yeah. manner. And, you know, he was a great representative of us. And I like, you know, that he got elected. I like he was the first African-American president. I like that he was his father was a Muslim. I think that was kind of cool. But uh, um, those were good things for the country to, to, the, to show that we could we would elect a man like that. But I thought he was disappointing in other ways. And in many ways, I think that his a lot of things led to Donald Trump. I think some of Barack Obama's failures led to Donald Trump also. But, um, you know, the blame goes around to a lot. Now, there's there's two political things that I feel we don't talk enough about in society right now in this moment. We march about everything. Um, one is health care. Yeah. And one is immigration. I'd like. You wait, know, wait, we don't talk enough about those things now? We, the, we don't the, talk about the reality and how they affect people like me. Oh, personally. I see. OK, so like beyond um, beyond the political. Yeah. Um, beyond the political. You know, we either talk about stuff. the very wealthy or the very poor, but mm. the people in the middle never get into that conversation in, in a realistic way. I mean, I spend over three thousand dollars a month on health care because I go to a homeopath and I go to an acupuncturist, but I have to have you know, regular health care to go to the hospital and nothing's covered there and my out of pocket, you know, that piece of it really hits home to my industry because I can't give health care to all these employees in an affordable way for the company or them. So I'd love to hear because you're both very different in how you approach as this I said, it, it'll be, I'll be interesting because I haven't talked to Che about this, going back <laughs> to how I know. Um, and I and usually he and I agree on economics. I'm not sure what the answer is here because, you know, I think the my view of the healthcare system. And by the way, Ernesto knows this because he used to work in the in the he knows the system because he used to work in it. Um, so it's interesting to hear his perspective. But my perspective on it is we evolved into this system where it was not a societal responsibility like other industrial nations. And I think we did that because, as, as I recall, the American Medical Association, on behalf of the doctors in particular, liked to keep it as a cartel. And you know, in, in times past, do, being a doctor was a, was a route to riches and um, prestige. And I, they were the always ones who would you know, raise the cry against socialized medicine more than anybody else. So they were a big part of stopping it. And now that we're so far down the road in a country so large, in such a complex part of our economy, it's really hard to picture how to do this. But in the end, it has to be done. And I, I think you know, one of the reasons I don't like Bernie Sanders is I, I just find what he says just so incomplete and hypocritical. I mean, what he promises is great, but there's never a delivery on it. So, for example... You know, he just talks about Medicare for all, as do others. And it sounds great, but I would love to hear somebody say like him, something like, hey, listen, this is a a right of people and it's a societal burden we should all share. We're going to have a value added tax or a national sales tax like they have in Europe to pay for it. It's going to benefit small businesses like yours because all of a sudden we're going to take like like the other industrialized nations. We're going to take this off the backs of small businesses and new business owners who want to build a business because it should be a societal um, burden. Responsibility, but it's got to be a societal responsibility to, to share the burden to pay for it. And if you know, if the Democrats are going to do it by thinking they're going to tax the rich, there's not enough to tax the rich to do it. If they're going to implement it by borrowing more, they're going to drive us into bankruptcy, and you'll be like Greece one day. So I think the problem with politics here is everyone likes to talk about the the goodies that they want to give, but no one is talking about how to spread the burden. And the burden, if you're going to do it through government, which in the end probably I think is the only way to do it. It's going to have to be spread around and, and to pay for it. No one wants to do it. So that's that's the problem. That's where I just don't know how this is going to be done. Um, for the in, in terms of someone who's worked in the medical system, I can tell you that the way it's designed now is like talented people, uh, talented physicians have options. 
and they're leaving the industry. I left the industry uh, and, th and I said I would never go back. Uh, I'm not a physician, but I was an OR device rep. So I advised surgeons on what techniques and technologies they could use for things like um, necrotizing fasciitis, which is a flesh eating disease, uh, hernia, um, um, and you know, serious, serious um, injury. And, um, you know, surgeons, people that have an education that qualify them to work in medicine, they have options. And the, the more we federalize medicine, the, the less interested, talented people are to work in medicine. On the other hand, you know, I'm a patient just like everyone else. Eventually, I become a patient. Um, there are, you know, and I'm a business owner. And right now, you know, my company, we're looking at, uh, there's a Christian, I, I, I wish I had the mm. thing on me. There's a Christian insurance system out there that basically says it doesn't cover pre-existing conditions, but as long as you're, uh, it's like 500 a month, it covers, as long as it's prescribed by your, your doctor, um, it's covered and uh, you can't be denied. So there what are- What about things that Christians don't believe in? Well, of course, I mean, it doesn't pay for abortion, but you know, you, you can hire a hitman anywhere. So, um, <laughs> so um, you know, the, the thing is, is does it cover emergency room? Does it cover, it doesn't cover dental either, or eye, you know, or, or eyeglasses. But uh, does it cover your heart medication? Does it cover blood pressure? Does it cover, yeah, it covers things like orthopedic injury. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you have to, if you're gonna, we're, in my company, we're researching this now, but there, there are other um, alternatives out there than the government managing your medicine. And to your point, you know, you said, does it pay for um, abortion? I would ask you this, you know, one day we're all going to be, God willing, 70, 80 years old, and the government's going to say, you know, we've been paying for your health care long enough. Don't you think it's time you step aside? And that's not ridiculous. You know, it's it's it comes down to economics, whether they say it in words like that. In practice, they will start denying things that they no longer see as beneficial to society. And I don't feel comfortable and I don't think any of us would feel comfortable if we really uh, philosophically went down a certain road and said, do we want government managing our health care? Do we want to give them more and more power over the purse? And if we do, then what does that mean practically and pragmatically? Ultimately, it's going to lead to them making health care decisions for us. Whereas if we have a free market that's fragmented state by state, even uh, company by company, uh, and we take power away from the, from the insurance companies, and we can somehow... Uh, decorporatize it, then I think prices can be more stable and more competitive so that it can be affordable. But the only part, you know, what's never been answered in that is I, there's a couple things. First of all, you know, other industrialized countries around the world, we're the only one who doesn't do it. Government does get involved in this. And, and I wonder if healthcare is kind of similar to like, you know, building roads or, or, or national defense, where it's just something that government has to do because it's not possible for the private sector to do. That being said, it doesn't mean it has to do the whole scheme of healthcare. But the problem is if you, and I would have liked to see a free market solution to it, but the problem is that if you go for just a free market solution, um, what will happen is, is those who have more medical bills and pre-existing conditions are gonna be rejected. Uh, you know, insurance companies will have the opportunity to, to not insure them, they'll charge exorbitant rates. And the whole concept of this is to spread the burden among society and the cost among society. Because if you don't cover pre-existing conditions, it really, it, you know, that's, that's really the, the the most important part. So people aren't going to be aren't going to be bankrupted or unable to to 
care for a serious injury. So maybe the answer is that government somehow mandates insurance companies or through its own system to have some type of catastrophic coverage. And, you know, below that, you know, the free market takes over. But, I, you know, I used to hope there was a free market solution, but I don't see it anymore. There's a free market solution so long as you're working and so long as you're healthy to work. When you're no longer healthy to work, we already have Medicaid. And if you're older, we have Medicare. And at least Medicaid, as far as I know, is is really strapping hospitals because yeah, sure. we're talking too. about yeah. uh, I'm for I'm pro, Im, you know, pro immigration. I'm Filipino, but I'm pro legal immigration mm-hmm. and I'm pro uh, health care so long as um, it's for people that are paying into taxes. So so long as you're and I, and I mean taxes in the normal system. So if you're healthy, then free market health care works. Right. right? And so that you're healthy. But you could be um, working with a pre-existing condition that needs to be treated. That's the problem. Sure. And so if you don't have health insurance and you're still working, because then then it's first of all, it's it's I don't think it's moral to, to I do think health care is a right. So if you're still working with a pre-existing condition, you got to be able to have access to health care. And I think if you lose it um, for some reason, you're still working. I don't think you're necessarily going to have access to it. It could be too expensive. It could be rejected. Um, and, you know, it could be working. You could still be working with various ailments that could eventually kill you. You could be working with various ailments that could eventually disable you. You could be working with various ailments that are crushing to you right now in terms of pain and problems. And if you, if you can't have that, if it's always going to be pre-existing exclusion, I think that's the, that's really the big gap. That's really the real crux of the, of the dilemma to me. Well, I think it's also we don't. Um, advocate wellness in this well, that's country a whole big thing too, in any way, oh, shape, God. or form. Um, you know, uh, you're yeah. better off going to a Qigong class yeah. than get back surgery. Quite honestly, yeah. I've had both. Mm. <laughs> and you know, not to sound a little bit banana Republican here, but <laughs> when the government starts taking control of things, you get welfare systems, you get systems that allow people not to work and to get all the things they need. Yeah. You know, I deal with it every day with people coming in here for jobs and lasting about 10 minutes. Don't start sounding too much like Ernesto. Well, <laughs> I do in a business sense. No, I know, because, I know. But I think health care, I think is a little different because health care, it's, it's not like, say, other government benefits where people take advantage. I think they the theory, do. Oh, but I think, that's but I think, not true. But I think true. the theory of health care, though, I think the theory of health care, I, I think if you accept it, I think health care should be, should be a right. So no matter if you're a loafer, a scoundrel, a cheat, um, someone who always takes advantage of the system, if you need to get a you know, a kidney operation or if you need to get treatment, well, I think you're entitled that, to get it. Yeah, you know? so Cause I we agree. can't really judge based on their morality or their reason, their, 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 you, their willingness to work or their, their goodness. I think you got to give healthcare. People should be able to get healthcare. But period. then you look at like, um, I have employees here and have had women in this community who are 16, 17 years old mm. on their second or third child sure. that I'm paying for. Yeah. Now, I didn't have kids till I was in my 40s because I couldn't afford it. Yeah, but I'm paying for your kids and I don't have kids and different things for government, too. So, I mean, that's part of the community. Yeah, but um, once and, the and government now, and, allows people to. But like, let's say you decide to have three, four or five kids. I got to pay for their education for my property taxes. I should say, hey, Marilyn, don't have five kids. And you would say, I want to have five kids. Or or if you were Ernesto 
and uh you know and and all of a sudden he planned to have two kids and there was a third there's going to be a third kid and even if he was diligent and somehow his his contraception failed and uh whatever then um, my kids will be working here at seven that's right yes. and they will be, be, no, and that's, be, we're we're be made, we're made 90 my, bucks last saturday but my point is for her kids but my point is the thing the thing where where i go a little more like um where I kind of look at the system is it's funny everyone um, you know everyone could point of examples of things where they think people are taking advantage of the system and they are but there's also almost everybody almost has things that someone else will say hey why am I paying for that but I think it's not just taking advantage and no one's taking advantage this is a culture we've created so it's normal yeah but when we start to do things like even unions, I'm not a big union person anymore because yeah. I don't think they do what they were intended to do. Well, let's anymore. distinguish. I think there's two types of unions. There's private sector unions and government employees unions. I think government employees unions, no offense to my friends who are government workers, I think have been a disaster because they've been allowed to inter- intervene in the political process by um, collecting dues. And luckily, there's a Supreme Court decision. Now I'm going to sound like Ernesto that, that curbed <laughs> that where they can actually compul- get compulsory dues to then elect people who are actually sitting on the other side of the negotiating table with them. And that's why our pension system is, pro- is practically bankrupt in New Jersey and why it will one day swamp everything and all the people who really need help will be paying into the pension system to give people pensions. Um, so the government employees unions, I think, are out of control. The private sector unions, I used to be more negative on, but it's funny, now as the economy is more further down, I hear better arguments for them, a little more. I'm, I've actually find myself a little more pro-private sector union than I used to be. But um, yeah, there's all these crazy nuances with it, Marilyn. So for uh, healthcare, I just want to say that, you know, everyone has an ideal until they're sick. Everyone thinks something of healthcare until they're sick. Sure. And then it becomes a different uh, scenario. And at least in this country so far, I have not seen, and I worked in, I would say, orthopedics and surgery for, I don't know, a long time, 13, 14 years. Um, never saw people turned away. Correct. Um, everyone who needed a surgery received surgery. Right. The question is, is did they receive good care and can they afford the care they received? And I would say that even flunky doctors, only two come to mind, um, even they provided very decent surgery compared to what you can get um, in most of the, de- of the developed world. Uh, but ultimately, could patients afford it? No. Uh, some patients, many patients, I would say probably 20 percent. It's not a, you know, uh, scientifically accurate, but just, you know, things that I saw anecdotally. There were plenty of patients, 20 percent in Monmouth and Ocean County that couldn't afford um, their a insurance and they couldn't afford that they were already paying for. And they couldn't afford the balance that was not covered through uh, their insurance. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I mean. In this country, if you don't have a family then to fall back on and you don't have a church that supports you, then something's going to break you ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But this is a country that also is anti-Christian and it's also anti-family. I mean, you have two children. And if you think about uh, all the systems that are put in place to make it less and less affordable you know, for you to be a parent, uh, you begin to wonder, wait, I thought I was doing society a favor by creating these beautiful kids that are going to be productive. And ultimately, America is a country that's set up against both the church and the family. But in terms of healthcare, um, other than competitiveness, it's up to families and it's up to churches to support their family members better. 
because government can't fix everything. Even the best governments can't. Yeah. But there's still going to be a role for government somewhere. Sure. Like you can't have the private sector. Sure. You can't have the military. You can't have, you can't have capitalists or what I wouldn't even call a capitalism at that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're not going to get them playing fair. Compa- yeah. A company's not going to play fair yeah. unless the government is in place to yeah. monitor it. Right. So that's why. Anyway. All right, Dan, what's your spirit animal? What's my what? Spirit animal. My spirit animal. My God, I don't ever say what is my spirit animal. I think of my. I think maybe a a Dalmatian because I had one and I felt such a a kinship with him because he was fabulous. Not that I'm fabulous, but he just had a great attitude. So I hope I have a similar happy-go-lucky, positive attitude like my late great Mister Spot Dalmatian pet. So that, like, that's my Rorschach's text uh, test. That's what comes to mind immediately. What is yours, Che? That's a great question. When I was a kid, I, um, my favorite animal was an eagle. One, um, because they fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had, I was born with a white patch on my head. So we're, so eagles, some of them have a white patch. And uh, when they have to, they kill. So that's you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could have guessed that answer. I would have guessed eagle or lion before you, Che. Well, I can't be a lion. I, I think um, they have low cardio. <laughs> they're, they have terrible cardio. Did you ever see a lion fight? No. I mean, they'll kill you in three seconds, right. but if you make them run more than 15 seconds, I they, mean, they're, they, they're, they're just awesome. gassed out, man. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not me. I want to be up there on the catching catching some wind, you know, like an eagle. Oh, my goodness. Um, do you know what shadowing is? The, no. Like in the therapy world, that's the thing that happened to you as a child or somewhere early on in your life that you detest in other people because hmm. you've never kind of dealt with it in yourself can you mean I, like being tall because no i no. wish i was i'm five nine i wish i was six too so i was always shadowed <laughs> by bastards <laughs> well, that were taller than me it, and i'm pissed <laughs> there you go <laughs> you know i I've, I've been fortunate i've had a nice life uh i'm really grateful for it. i have really nice experiences in life and um you know, I really don't think I've had anything like that that jumps out at me. Um, and, you know, I don't really detest too much in people because I tend to uh, whatever, probably from my parents' upbringing, I tend to look at the the good in them. And uh, unless the bad in them is hurting other people, um, I, I ignore the bad. It's just really I really don't care. You know, it's almost like business like where it's not worth my time. But if there's something good to, to connect with them on, I connect with them on. You know? so, so is there anything in people, especially people close to you that triggers you? You know, like I have issues when people brown nose me. It's and it happens a lot. You know that integrity thing yeah. really gets to me. It's kind of funny, maybe because I had a political background at a young age. I have such thick skin, and I it, it cracks my wife up too. I just look beyond it. Like if someone is a uh, you know brown noser, or if they're arrogant, or if they're obnoxious, I just kind of look beyond it. If they're if it's annoying, I just turn away and go somewhere else. You know, it just doesn't really bother me the only thing that ever bothers me is when someone is doing damage to somebody else and you got to stop them or act or advocate against them or do what you have to do um in a way where they're acting malicious but yeah that's pretty much my standard beyond that i, I they don't i don't bother with them people don't drain me i'm fortunate i don't get distracted by it and it's a nice way to live so i think i got it from my dad my very actually my mother too man. i am a lucky man my parents were very much like that so uh they can never say a negative thing about anybody and the funny thing about my dad I call him a braggart for humanity. He will like brag about his 
his family. He'll brag about people who work for him. He'll brag for, you know. That's a like beautiful a, person. It's a beautiful person. And, and That's he'll, a beautiful And he'll That's brag about like someone at a front desk where he lives at the retirement community. And what's, what's really cool about it is, and I picked it up like 10, 15 years ago, it's not happy talk. He will find something in, in from, the, from the, the simplest person to the most accomplished person. That's actually true. And he, he runs with it. And uh, I think that's affected my whole family. We're all kind of like that. And it is, a, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing, I have to say. So I've been lucky on that. It is because that is a, a dad who's taught people by living it out that there's dignity in every human being. Absolutely. And praise everybody. And, yes. uh, and rarely, crit- and the only, the handful of times uh, my parents criticize people when I've heard them do it, people usually, they deserve that. They were usually untrustworthy people. And I mean a handful of times, like untrustworthy or just not, you know, not good people. But it's a rarity to hear uh, a negative comment against anybody in my household. And the positive ones weren't BS. They were actually, you know, I started listening. I'm like, huh, yeah, that guy, that person is really helpful. Or yeah, that person is really smart. Or yeah, that person really has done a lot with what they were dealt or, you know, so it's, it's a gift. Yeah. So shadowing is what again? Well, like this, um, when I'm fighting with my husband, sometimes he'll say, stop acting crazy. <laughs> and that immediately <laughs> triggers this almost physical reaction that's a bad that's a if i if if scott was here i'd say don't ever say that to your wife yeah don't ever say that to anybody but it's not because you know i'm crazy but my mother had a nervous breakdown when i was a kid so that is like a physical reaction it's not it doesn't come into my brain it's Mm -hmm. like i start to sweat and and feel that moment with my mom yeah you know Hmm. so that's what shadowing is it's like this deep thing that you've got to you don't even know is in there till until you break it open. Go through therapy and come out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought growing up in an all-white neighborhood, I thought the whole world was racist. Mm. It's interesting. And you, I yeah. beat the shit out of more people by the time <laughs> I was 11 years old than uh, I, I think any, except for my mom and grandmother. They also, they had it where they grew up in a black and a white neighborhood. And being Filipino, no one knows what we are. Mm. So they had it worse. As women, they fist fought boys girls and when someone messed with my uncles my mother brutalized them Mm. so i grew up in an all-white neighborhood and i thought until probably until my first girlfriend i thought that everyone was a racist asshole yeah so my girlfriend one and i were on the phone her name's casey still talk to her to this day um we're on the phone one day and she's like wait you're white i'm like what she's like why do you keep why do you say you're a person of color i was like look at my skin she's like you're white i'm like if i'm white then day is night and night night is day but um she she was white and she impressed me that wow i guess everyone doesn't see me as a person of color which i think is great and what's funny is those kids that i grew up with that had no exposure to anything other than black and white people um, they had never met a Filipino person. They had never met an Asian person. They had never uh, met a Spanish or Mexican person. Um, now those kids that I grew up with are, you know, I stay in touch with them. They're great people. There's not a racist bone in their body. It's more like their estrangement from diversity. Right. And um, but that chip, it took a long time to get off my shoulder. The funny thing is, is I had never felt discrimination like that until, by the way, I came to Asbury Park. So growing up in an all-white neighborhood um, where kids were not exposed to anyone other than themselves, um, 
you know, there was a lot of fighting, you would say, that happened. When I moved to, and you know, I, I outgrew that chip on my shoulder, but when I came to Esbury Park, um, on the outside, everyone welcomes me. I mean, yeah. you know, people want to be friends with me, people, and then they read what I wrote, yeah. um, you know, because I'm Christian, pro-American, um, they, I get more discrimination now based on my beliefs and my religion than I get, than I received in the most, you know, KKK is, if you, if you research it, uh, Ocean County, County sure. Barnegat, Bayville, the Tom's River, the area I grew up with is the home of the KKK. You know, it's funny that you talk about what you write in, in regard to this, because I was just thinking as you were talking that you know, I was talking about how I how I feel um, <clears throat> because of my upbringing. I have a nice, healthy relationship with people and my interpersonal life and my uh, private life and um, my non-professional life. But uh, funny enough, when you think about it, what I've been doing for 20 years, one of the things I do, aside from promoting you know, artistic, creative people and doing that, I also, when something bugs me, I like hit hard on certain character traits of people, either politicians, large corporations, or people in the media. So it's kind of funny. Um, I I get pissed off at it. Like I'll get pissed off at local politicians doing stupid things, and I have an outlet to to blast it, and I do. But if for some reason, I I differentiate that from the personal in that I think if someone steps into that arena, they should be able to take the heat. And indeed in the paper, if someone wants to write back something that that's, smashes me, I, I, I print it unedited and people are shocked that I print it. So I guess the things interesting the things that bother me and get me going is I'll see a politician locally or even nationally, but, but you know, in terms of the paper locally, they do something that just drives me up a wall just in terms of the stupidity of it. And I do obviously um, vocalize that and let it out. But I write very early in the morning <laughs> And when I'm done with my rant, I go about my business like nothing happened. So when people meet me for the first time, they're kind of shocked. Like, wait, I didn't expect you to be like this. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it's the same. Yeah. I think it's the same in that. Yeah, people are shocked when they meet you. People yeah. think I'm like some 80-year-old white guy because my yeah, name. Right. You know, like some 80-year-old Italian guy. Like, who, who, there's no way a young person can, yeah. can, can possibly believe what this guy believes. Right. But I think it's because people in Asbury Park live in a bubble. Yeah. Um, the rest of the world is not like Brooklyn. The rest of the world is not like Asbury Park. The rest of the world is not like Beverly Hills or West Hollywood. The rest of the world is um, goes to work every day with other normal people that have normal jobs. Mm. You know, they don't work in media. Um, they don't own newspapers. You know, they don't own restaurants. They're just, and I'm not criticizing us, I'm just simply saying, nor the people at this table, because I think we're, we're all very uh, open, loving, uh, social, well socialized people. But I think uh, a lot of people that live in our communities are not. I think they live in, uh, and it's a, it's a problem with the country in the cities in general, is that how could someone vote for Trump? Someone could vote for Trump because they don't live in this bubble. They have different kinds of problems that we may not have. And they look at politicians as a solution. And we, we spoke earlier about uh, Trump being chemotherapy. Uh, to conclude that idea and, and to bring it back to this is that chemotherapy can kill the patient. Yeah. I f am fully aware that chemotherapy can kill the patient and I think Trump could kill the patient. But, and I think many voters realize that Trump can kill the patient, but they see us as so diseased. And it's like you would say those voters still elected to go through chemotherapy. They'll do it. Right. They'll do it. Happened, yeah. The country is so diseased. I think Marilyn and I would say there might have been a different course of uh, medical care oh, for the political oh, system. Oh, sure. Homeopaths <laughs> should have come in there. And, and that's, that's where Marilyn and I would agree, 
that a naturopathic way is often better than the pharmaceutical way. Right. But we have we live in a pharmaceutical political society right. where you only have two parties. It's Merck or <laughs> the other one, you know. J or something. Yeah, Novartis. Yeah. Right. You know, we have either Democrat or Republican Party. We can only choose two solutions. Um, and the the country is that diseased yeah. where we have to go to extremes. I think people looked at Barack Obama as an extreme. So like, hey, this guy's not part of the system. We need him. Well, just so happens that this guy exploited. Well, one, he used the IRS to persecute Christians and Republican organizations. Um, but two, he made all his friends rich through Solyndra and all those other uh, vestige, uh, you know, those other extensions of the government. But um, in terms of locally, I think that um, we live in a bubble and I think we, we don't understand what people outside of this bubble we don't really see how I would how, agree with you. And how, like I said, that's live. part of the mission of the paper. That's one of the reasons we have your voice in the paper. So like what like what what people who want to see Trump thrown out, like myself, um, have to understand is something you said earlier in this discussion is that look, you recognize that uh, he could be crude, you recognize that he's like chemotherapy, you recognize that uh, uh, in many ways he's just not that not good. Um, but you still voted for him and you and you made the point. A lot of people felt that way and they still voted for him. But in and, the city in and cities and like cities New don't York, understand, don't understand how that could happen. They're shocked here. that people like me exist, yeah. but yet I'm the majority of the geographic part of the country. Like you fly from yes, geographically part. you're yes. correct, but these yes. are the population centers. But like I say to people who object to even having your column in our paper, and I, you know, obviously I defend your right to say what you want to say. Um, I tell them, say, listen, you got to understand if you want to defeat Trump, you got to understand why people voted for Trump, and that's why I have to listen to you know. Crackpots like you. Sorry. Just <laughs> I don't you know, I agree. I don't think we have a lot of choices. It's funny to watch this Democratic um, party blow up to have like a million choices. Yeah. And there's a, at this but, point. But, but, but hey, listen, that illustrates another issue. And the problem with politics is, you know, you, 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 you got to be careful what you wish for. If you destroyed the two party system and, and had more diversity of choices, it also could be anarchy. And our system is not designed for it. You know, we're when, when Trump was running and, and I would argue to people not to vote for him, people would say, well, we can always impeach him. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. That's easy. That like that takes a that takes a few hours and a few days. And, you know, Republican Senate's really going to do two thirds vote to impeach him. I mean, people didn't understand that this is not like a parliamentary system. We can have a vote of no confidence. The government goes down. You can have new elections and those can be inherently unstable. So. Yeah, I guess it doesn't make a difference what system it is. It depends on the condition of society. It depends on the ethics of the society. It depends on the communication systems. It depends on the quality of leaders. And, um, you know, hopefully you muddle through. But sometimes there, you know, there has to be some vetting. You know, people don't like it because they say it's anti-democratic. But, you know, political parties used to do it. Media did it. Uh, social media and now the Internet are destroying it, breaking it down. And too many choices are also chaos. So, you know, it, hopefully we find the happy medium. Yeah, it's funny. We can't get smart people together to hash through. You know, I guess because I'm in business and I'm in a business that deals with a lot of. Well, you're a dictator. You're a benevolent a of, dictator. You can do what you want to do. You know, in government, you I can't. Wish you're, you're I wish I could do what I well, want. Well, more do. so, more so. You know, it's more so than someone in office because they got to answer to multiple diverse constituencies. They have to answer their own egos because they want to be in office. They got to answer to all these other people driven to power. 
And it's a very complex calculus that's that's really difficult but to navigate. But I don't navigate. think they all make the choices looking at the different perspectives of the business that they're in. No, they make the choice on what can get them reelected. And that's yeah. and you know, I served a term in the state legislature back thirty years ago and it was valuable to see behind the scenes because we all know that all all politicians want to get reelected. And it's even worse than you think because they're just great actors. And so, you know, they'll they'll say whatever it takes on all sides and they'll say it with conviction to, to beat the other person so they can be in power. And ironically, we celebrate all these leaders and we, we give them all this prominence and and people love it. And they love the, the joy of being in there and the, the reward that it gets to have these accolades in society. And it's some way counterproductive, some way they really shouldn't be. Uh, held to any praise beyond the average person and that would be true service but you know as long as it's becomes it's prestigious people will keep will stay there and um i don't know they're they're you know it's it's the drive it's i used to say it was funny when i was in the when i was in office the funny thing is you know everyone thinks that um a lot of people think that big money dictates and in the end big money dictates a lot but the most hilarious thing is when you have a politician facing a vote that can cost them their seat and on one side is their big money donors. On the other side is the voters who are going to eject them. They will vote with the voters and they will ditch the big money people to stay in office. I've seen it before. I have no doubt. So in some ways, the voters have more power than they think. But it's it's pretty funny how, uh, how the dynamic plays out. I found the hardest thing when I was running was the thought of having to go and shake the hands and kiss the babies all the time <coughs> and not be able to just work. What do you mean? On the work on the on the su- uh, the substance of the job? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that, part of, that's part of the problem. You know, seventy five percent of the job was going to events and being in parades, and you know, I'm not. For me, it was that I wanted to be in office to do things. And well, in our system, it's it's a necessary evil. People have to know you. They have to see you. They have to look. Most of the times, when you're voting for people, or at least if you're if you're willing to split party lines, like like I have been, and split your your party vote. You're often voting for people on a gut instinct on on how they're going to do it because you don't know exactly what they're going to do. You don't know all the issues. And generally, quite frankly, for president, I think that's how people vote. I think the you know the country was split. They had a gut instinct about Trump. People voted for him, liked him. And that was that. But that's the necessary evil. You have people in our democracy. They want to see you. In local stuff, they want to see you personally. National, now they see you on social media because they have to have a feel for who you are and what you're about. When I ran, I did a lot of door-to-door. And ironically enough, I loved it. I loved going up the doors. I was in my late 20s. Um, I don't. I have no interest in politics now, and my back bothers me. But today is like near, <laughs> today. If like close to sixty, I think it would be such a trip to go knock on a thousand doors. Is like the you like now the older. Well, it'd be funny because I was like a young politician. And I enjoyed it and I liked it, and people liked me, and it was fun to talk to people. Most of them were older. Now I'd be like the talk to people who are younger, and it would be it'd be kind of fun. But you have yeah. Lillian Berry doing it door to door. Yeah, I used to do it. It was she, fun doing it as an incumbent running for re-election. Mm-hmm. Stop at the door. Hi, I'm your state legislator. I'm your mm-hmm. assemblyman. Um, so uh, that part I really liked. The parades I found a little boring, but because uh, they they moved too slow. But door to door was hilarious. I loved it. I did like door to door. Actually, what I didn't like is uh, the baby kissing and the. I didn't like going to. Um, I'm kind of like, I Woody Allen's whole mindset of not wanting to be part of a group. Yeah. That would have him as a member. I did like meeting voters. I didn't like going to Republican Party events mainly because. Like you were saying earlier about brown nosing, it's just, I felt like while the spotlight's on you, everyone wants to shake your hand. It's very the voter is the one who cares. Yeah, I think inside the the political system, you're selected mainly because nowadays because of optics and because you may have a social media presence. Yeah. I did like the um, going door to door, but I definitely did not like you know kissing the babies at the political events and 
Well, the difference you know? is because you you like the human contact where the contact with the voter was for the purpose of interacting with the voter. Versus the other about stuff, things have, we care about. Versus the other, and that's why I love the door to door stuff myself, and why yeah. you did too, because you're there. You're not there to goof around. You're yeah. there to be friendly, give them some literature, chat if they want. Yeah. But versus, like, you know, I remember you had to make appearances just so, like, strategically, politically, we sure. go around to make appearances at events so people would see State us. State fairs, whatever it is, right? Yeah, and that's and that stuff. That's a little tedious. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna wrap it up soon, but I have a couple questions. Um, Charity, you know, this book that I wrote that I'll give you copies of is a cookbook, but it's about charity. It's about giving back. It's about finding the thing that lights you up while you're helping people. I love it already. (laughs) And what moment, if you can pick a moment in life, like when you say door to door, I can remember the first time I went door to door for the New Jersey Environmental Federation. That makes two of us. And I went out there with like this purpose of changing the world and getting a clean ocean and all these things and, you know, getting the door slammed in my face and slammed in my face (laughs) and slammed in my face. And whatever it was in me that kept me pushing through that brings me to where I am today. It's pretty much my purpose in life. Everything I do has some charity component. I mean, Scott says to me all the time, because I'll be like, I want to do this thing and we could give to, he's like, I want the charity to be us. Next charity (laughs) event is for us. (laughs) We are the next charity in 2019. That's funny. Um, You know, and being a Buddhist, Mm -hmm. having to grapple with that, my cup needs to be full for it to runneth over because Mm -hmm. the perception of Buddhists and when people look at me from the outside, they think my purpose here is to give everybody everything all the time and that I'm this person who just gives, gives, gives. And Mm -hmm. I have all this money that just keeps flowing through me, you know, and it took me 50 something years to figure out that I shouldn't be afraid of money. I need it to get the things done in my life. But my moment of charity as a human being came out of death. Mm. When my parents died, my mother was Catholic, my father was Jewish, and I was young and I went through a lot of stuff as a kid. The, the physical things of my mother and her problems and my father's age and money, and they were self-employed, so money was always up and down. And when they died, this priest came from down the street from um, an Episcopal church and he just happened to knock on the door like the day after my father died and my parents died within a year and it was a very tough time. My mother had cancer when my father died and I was 20 so I was scared and you know feeling like I'm a kid I don't want to be dealing with Mm -hmm. all this and he I opened the door and he started to talk to me and I was so mean to this man because I was just angry and scared. And he said, you know, I totally understand where you're coming from. You should be angry. I want you to come see me and just hang out and have coffee. And in that moment, I was like, this is charity. Like this person should just be like, fork you, Mm -hmm. you know, and walk around and walk, turn around and walk away. And he didn't, he said something that made me calm down and made me feel safe. And for me, giving and charity is a way to make people feel safe and feel included in something that is bigger than me. 
what was the moment, if there was one for either one of you, you know, you're both very political, but you also do a lot of good in this community through your voice, whether you know it or not. Mm. And do you know it? Yeah. I think for me, I didn't, I didn't have anything as dramatic as that, Marilyn. I was, again, fortunate in, in my path of life. And uh, in my early years, I was always interested in doing interesting things and getting good education. And I strove with that. But I always was interested in politics and getting involved with politics. I, I like the um, competitiveness and the, the interesting nature of politics. I started, I remember reading the New York Times on the suggestion of an uncle when I was about 11. And just as the Watergate stuff was unfolding. So I remember reading all that and fascinated by it. I always wanted to go into it because I thought it would be substantive. But I also like the, the competitiveness of it, the interestingness of it. Um, so I got involved, as you know, at a very early age and got elected in my 20s and ran first for the state legislature when I was 23. When Frank Pallone first got elected to the state Senate in 84, I came up from Washington where I was working while I was still in college and worked for him. So I always was first involved in politics because I knew you could do substantive good things. But I think it was driven by the political more. But things started to shift a bit for me. One of the things that that not as much charity, but in terms of um, just like in terms of what's important for, for people. Uh, in 1987, uh, I decided to run for the Ocean Township Council. I thought I was going to run again for the legislature. And I did it because I loved open space and I loved the, the woods in our area. And I saw a new development going up in Ocean Township, a place that was previously untouched. And I got pissed off. I said, you know, I'm going to run for this seat. And I did. And so that first drove me. And the other thing that drove me after that, I actually wrote about this week in a column that I reprinted from 20 years ago. Uh, I was there for a term as a Democrat. I was elected at 28. I was the youngest one there. I had a very promising political career. And unfortunately, there was a backlash against the Democratic Party, deserved, by the way, looking back, um, against the then governor, Jim Florio. And I was tossed out um, in a midterm election. And, uh, you know, it was a, there was a lame duck session. We would go to Trent and it was a little depressing because, you know, you knew you weren't coming back. I was ready to be done with it. And the last day, we were suddenly told that we were going to be voting on a um, uh, to change the law against discrimination to include sexual orientation, to include the LGBT community so they wouldn't be dis discriminated against in housing, uh, employment and public accommodations, all these types of things. And I think back then only four states had done that. It came out of nowhere. I had no idea why the Democrats did that the last day. But I was kind of like. All right, well, this is at least something interesting. I mean, at least we're doing something worthwhile here. And I remember they voted for it. Uh, we voted for it. I looked up at the board. I can see everyone vote. And I was just kind of watching. I said, oh, this is passing. This is kind of cool. And I remember looking up in the gallery across the way. And the people, the LGBT people, a lot of them were around my age in their 20s who had been lobbying for it. I remember after I saw it passed, I looked up in the gallery. And I saw these people bawling and sobbing and, and hugging each other. And I'm staring up. And I'm like, you know, just turned 30. And I was I was stunned about it. I, I just never saw anything like it, an emotion like that. And then as I wrote 20 years ago, and I reprinted today. I suddenly realized, you know, being a straight white boy from Ocean Township is not such a hard thing. And, you know, I, there's no I haven't had adversity. And I looked up to those people and I just I realized that there is a lot of adversity that people suffer. I really saw it there. And that was a major point for me. You know, fast forward to 1999, I started the paper. I left the law practice where I did do good for people also as like a public defender and pro bono work for some people. And uh I found the paper in a sense of service and being able to promote people and benefit people. So it's nice to have now my work for the last 20 years being a big part, as you say, you know, promoting people, boosting them. Our website, asburyparksun.com, also does that. And uh, yeah, a lot of the work is service in that regard. And that was me, you know, my late 30s, really ready to focus on it. So I'm lucky I do it every day in my work. I was never a charitable person. Um, I'm the firstborn of my generation and everything is about me. 
Um, my mother uh, and I, my my brothers, we attended my uh, younger, my middle brother's wedding in the Philippines about 16 years ago. And um, there's these poor kids begging and, and like selling stuff. And I just thought to myself, um, I was like, these kids are freaking panhandling me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, beat it, kid. Wow. And my mom was like, um, don't you see? They're just like you and your brothers. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, yeah, circumstance is the only thing that separates you from them. You could have been born, uh, you know, here instead of in America. You know, you, you could have been born under different circumstances. Um, so I thought about it. And then my mother became a full-time missionary. Uh, she sold all her wealth. And she lived uh, in Guadalupe, Mexico uh, during the drug war. And um, that's still going on today. She had friends and acquaintances kidnapped, murdered, assassinated. Um, so being involved in, you know, supporting my mother a lot sort of opened up my eyes to not everyone, not everyone can have the, you know, the basics of access to food every day. Uh, access to a roof over their head and you know being born in america even the poorest among us generally have it good then you look at those who don't have family and don't have uh, even government support and they're homeless so seeing these kids begging in the philippines and then seeing my mother's service in mexico and how uh, my mom risks uh, risked her life for years on a daily basis uh, to help the poorest among us made me think that I really need to be more mindful of, you know, the person that could be walking next to me on the sidewalk in Asbury Park, because even though they have a shirt on their back, uh, they may not have eaten today. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of charity, it's I think a lot of us can tend to be at first Hey, uh, you know, I give here, I get, I gave there. I think, um, you know, Marilyn, you've made a practice of giving, and I think it's in that practice that you, tr- that repetitive uh, seeking out people of need and trying to solve a solution that can't be solved by government and can't necessarily be solved by money, but could be so- solved by an organization offering help and, you know, money always, even Jesus. Uh, even the apostles raised money, you know, even Jesus, the creator of all living things and things seen and unseen needs the fuel of life, which is money, you know, money pays for the bread, pays for the fish, it pays for the, you know, the organizations to function. So I think being a very self-centered person by nature as a child and then growing up into a man and seeing my mother uh, by practice give and then supporting my mother and then realizing, wow, I love giving more than anything, you know? And I don't think that my business would be successful um, if I was not such a giving person now. Uh, and But in order to be a giving person, you have to practice it. You know, it has to be something that you practice over time because otherwise we're just so accustomed to feeding ourselves uh, but really, you know, I don't have kids. And when I die, um, you can look at Mexico and you can look at the Philippines. And um, there are countless kids that I'm feeding now. 
and I may not have um, a legacy in terms of my own children um, yet or ever. But um, I can tell you right now that because of my mother teaching me charity through practice, um, you know, I, I can easily count to at least 100 kids that are mine in some regard, you know. Yeah, my my dad taught me a couple things. He was an amazing human being. And one of the things he taught me when I was very young, he started a company called Seashore Title and Mortgage Company because he sold real estate. And he met a lot of people in Asbury, Neptune, Bradley area where he worked that were really hardworking, wonderful human beings. And they couldn't get mortgages because they had no resources, no collateral, no life behind them or family. And he started the mortgage company to give them mortgages. And in the lessons he taught me and probably sometimes why my tolerance is very low in my giving is that I need to give to people who deserve what I give first off and that working hard in life is an attribute. It's a quality. It's a passion that I have and I want to surround myself and give to people who understand that, that it's not just a handout, you know, that teach a person to fish instead of throwing fish at them is a real thing. And, you know, I think with giving, the perspective is, is if you're a giver, you're just going to give. And there has to be for all of us, a, a kind of mechanism to do that and a, a, a way in a thought process of why you're doing it and the tolerance of it because it is hard to say no yep. you know and you can't say yes to everyone and everything in life um so you got to kind of pick your giving battles <laughs> you know so the last question to wrap up is living or dead this is a pretty popular question in life we're having a dinner party. We're all going to be there. So whoever you bring and whoever I bring adds to the party. Um, who are you bringing and what are you going to buy for them from dinner my alive. catering company? Or what are you going to make? Are they dinner alive? It could be anybody. It could be anybody. I always wanted to meet Thomas Jefferson for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. You know, I just think of, I often have this vision of like, a, like, putting Thomas Jefferson in my car and driving up the New Jersey turnpike and showing him what the heck happened to the country and say, what do you think? And by the way, what do you think that you own slaves and you build this and you were a slave owner and you're, you're a, you're a, uh, you're, you're, you're a beacon of liberty and revolutions in the world. So I just like, would like to some, for some reason, I think Thomas Jefferson would be a cool guy to bring to a dinner party to ask him a lot of these questions and uh, let him see what's going on. And, um, I don't know, I'd get some takeout from you and bring it. <laughs> 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 some vegan ribs yeah vegan ribs yeah I love them I think I'd get Karl Marx Hitler and Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> I'd feed them White Castle and I'd beat the living shit out of all three of them <laughs> I think those three people are such uh, well, you don't put Zuckerberg at the same oh, level he is as Hitler I don't think so I, I would say that Mark Zuckerberg is, I think Hitler's in a, Hitler's in a, in a the, land of his own. Sure. Yeah. But Marx gave way to Hitler. So they're, they're in a league all their own, right? Um, but I would say that Zuckerberg is anti-liberty. Mm. And um, he's the technologies between Google and uh, Facebook are so destructive to liberty 
that I think a good shit kicking would fix him psychologically. <laughs> yeah. It would not be relaxed. But, and White Castle would fix them, you know, from the inside out. If the Lord <laughs> At least for 24 hours. If the Lord won't fix them, then White right. Castle. Oh, I got you. I got yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. pretty funny. Uh, all right. Well, I always bring the Dalai Lama because I just think he's funny. Yeah. And I love You'd be interesting to have dinner. I would, listen, I'd, be, I'd, I'd have dinner yeah. with the Dalai yeah. Lama. I'd be cool with that. And all your people there, and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have a few questions. I'd have a few questions for all your people. Yeah, yeah. one I'd have trouble talking to, and I'd want to like you know quickly get something to kill him with. But the other two, I'd, I'd, I'd I think it's obvious. Too. The other two, I'd have a lot of questions for. I think I'd also invite right now, um, uh, Lena. Oh, Dunham. Dur Durnham. Yeah, I really like okay. that she's exposing herself in motherhood and life oh, interesting. in interesting. a very provocative. Way I belong to this organization called the Unicorn Moms on Instagram, and it's all moms who have very different ways of parenting that don't always fit the norm. And that's interesting. I think as a mother, um, it would be nice to to pick her brain about how she maneuvers through it. You know, um, favorite song that you'd play for these people? Oh my goodness. I think I'd play the Macarena <laughs> ad, ad, ad nauseum because if the White Castle didn't deplete them, the song would, and certainly the shit kicking would too. Oh my goodness, favorite song. I don't know. I what song would you play for Thomas Jefferson? Good God. <laughs> he got me. Again, I'll defer to Kenny Sorensen, String Bean, in the, on Monday night, and I'd play that music. Can't for go him. wrong there. Yeah. yeah. Bring for Kenny. your friends I would be yeah. no, I'd bring, I would bring Kenny to, to, to meet Thomas Jefferson that would be an interesting uh, combination yeah. uh, I always play Michael Franti I just <laughs> think he makes people happy <laughs> I need happiness these days I'm all for so. that I'm all for that well guys thank you it was thank um, you it was a lot of fun yeah, yeah. it's uh, I really love both of you because Aww. of your intelligence thank, thank you, you. If we could Love keep putting people together to just talk yeah. from that perspective alone, nothing else. Yeah, we try Bye, to do. I, I do think that, um, you know, having spent a lot of time in living in liberal cities and working in liberal cities, working in liberal uh, professions, that I tend to really love people and people tend to really love me if they can get beyond, if we can get beyond what you say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, yeah, and realize that e even if I was as bad as they say that I am, that um, there is, like your father would say, such great things to see in the other person. He would say he would he would disagree with God a lot of stuff and say he's a great writer. He's really become a great writer. Oh, thank you. you. Know, that's what he would say. Yeah. So if which, we could, which all what be I like think of you, ironically. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. If we could all yeah. be like your dad, though, yeah, just to see how beautifully made other people are from the yeah. inside out, then it really all of our political differences and socioeconomic differences would fade away for the most part. And then yeah. we think of the person, absolutely, and you know the need of the person. How can I communicate to the other person, and uh, how can I benefit the other person instead of uh, so fast our society is to to disregard people for whatever reason, whether it's the color of their skin, the religion, or or their political beliefs, but um, we'd have real relationships yeah. more often. Yeah, I think we'll all grow as human beings if one, we can 
be open in our dialogue and in our ability to communicate, which is a rare thing in life in general. And we've all like sitting here listening to lessons and moments in your life that change you. If you are intelligent and using that knowledge to open yourself up to allow to be changed in the moment, you know, our views always can move through and around each other, but I think for the greater good of the planet and the community, being open to yeah. the dialogue is important. That's what we're all about. And thank you for creating that dialogue every week. Yep. And putting Th- it out there. Thank you, and thanks for the cookbook. Yeah. Thanks for feeding me for the last <laughs> since 1984. <laughs> I'm excited about this cookbook. Okay. Because uh, as someone who's trying to spend more time at home, Here, this is your copy. Thank side. you. Cooking is sounds like a good idea, and the pictures are beautiful. Thank you. All right, okay. boys. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. It was fun. It's fun. I'm glad we didn't have the questions ahead of time. It was better. Yeah.